Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our evening Dhamma. Today we are studying the Mahagopala Sutta. And it's about Gopala. Go means cow in Pali. Pala means one who, or Gopalaka, right? Palaka means one who who cares for, who tends to, who, who guards. So uh, a cow guarder, no? a cow herd. Gopalaka is someone who, who looks after cows. And uh, the why we're talking about cowards is because the Buddha compares a, a practitioner with a cowherd. So as a cowherd, some cowherds some coward, cowherds are good at what they do. They're able to keep and raise a whole herd of cattle. But some other cowherds are not able to, they're not very good at their job. In the same way, meditators, practitioners, Buddhists, let's say, some Buddhists just aren't very good at their job, just aren't very good. And so this really serves as a guide. Uh, this one is is quite deep about meditation. There's not a lot of fluff in this sutta, but I think it's really useful for providing direction specifically for meditators. So there are 11 qualities of a coward. Uh, Coward has to, first of all, has to be rupanyu, means has to be knowledgeable about physique, about the physical. So a coward has to know, has to know something about the cows, about the body of the cows. And if a person is going to buy cows, you have to buy the right cows. You have to know something about about the body, about anatomy. You have to be able to keep the cows healthy, so you need to know a lot about their physical characteristics. The same way a, a, a practitioner meditator. This is where it all starts. It all starts with the body. Meditator should be aware of the physical realm. It's so important because it compromises most of, of what we think of as, as reality. Right? When you think of the world, the universe, existence, we don't think, oh, the existence is, is my mind. We think of existence as the physical realm. When I ask about you, who are you? Well, that's easy. I am what I see in the mirror, right? When I ask someone to describe a person, the first things is got to be physical. You know, are they male? Are they female? That's always been a big part. Are they old? Are they young? It all has to do with the physical body. Yeah, we get into qualities of the mind as well, but much of, of who we are and, and how we relate to the world is physical. 
So just like a cowherd, if we're going to be good at this, good at understanding ourselves, we have to understand the physical. So when we begin to when we begin to meditate, of course, we're using the body as our primary object. Right throughout the meditation course, the body is the primary object. And so the Buddha says the way to discriminate someone who understands the body and someone who doesn't is someone who understands that the body is the physical, or sorry, the physical reality is the four elements. This is called wisdom in Buddhism. Wisdom of, uh, regarding the body. And it's interesting because um, when we learn about the four elements in when I learned about them in high school one of the first things our teachers taught us was this is how the um, simple people right the primitive people of Greek Greece we usually hear about it this is how primitive people thought of the thought of science you know they thought of the world this is as, as far as they could get and of course we've gone much further now and so on and so on and so I always thought of the four elements as kind of a primitive te primitive description of the physical realm. Not very advanced, not very not very interesting in fact. When in fact um they're they're quite a bit more special than any physical theory about um the micro uh the, the subatomic physics and and astrophysics and all that because they relate to experience so a person who understands the buddha says a person who understands the physical someone who understands that it's it's experience it's, it's something that is experienced when we talk about physical we're not thinking about concepts Concepts are not physical, they're mental. What is truly physical is, is what is experienced. Feeling of earth, air, water, and fire. And these aren't the earth, air, water, and fire that um, we normally think of. You know, earth is just a name for the aspect of experience that is hardness. Uh, air is that aspect of experience that is tension. Uh, water or uh, fire is that aspect of experience that is heat. And water is that aspect of not quite experience, but kind of. That is the cohesion or, or stickiness. Attraction, I guess. The idea is that our outlook on the world, our perspective, our relationship with the world has to be experiential. That our body, and by extension the rest of the universe, because of course we don't experience the universe as human beings except, uh, except through the body. But whatever we do experience, that physical aspect of it is is just these experiences. It's very important for meditators. It's important to be primarily, I mean, it's the first step to becoming a meditator, is to be mindful of your experience, how you feel against the, the floor, how the temperature feels, the stiffness in your limbs and so on. Begin to, it's the beginning of approaching the realm of experience where you're aware of the experiential world. So that's number one. Number two, uh, a cowherd has to be skilled in lakana. Lakana kusalo has to be 
skilled in the characteristics. Is this cow, you know, the, the nature of the cow? Which cow, what, what characteristics of the cow make it a good one? Not just is it a big body or is it the nature of its body, but also maybe its hooves or its ears or its horns or maybe its tongue or its teeth or something. All the different characteristics. And likewise, uh, we're, we're, I guess the, the analogy here is to ourselves, to think of ourselves as either a herd of cows or a cow. Maybe we're, we're a cow and we're looking after ourselves or experience as a cow. And so if you think about yourself, if I'm a cow, what makes me a good cow? So he says a practitioner has to also be skilled in, in characteristics, knowing what are good qualities and what are bad qualities. What makes one a good person and what makes one a bad person? How do you know the cow is worth buying? Should I buy this cow or that cow? What makes a good cow? So he says, for a, for a meditator... Being skilled in qualities or characteristics is, is to know what makes one a wise person and what makes one a fool. And he says a wise person is distinguished by their actions and a fool is likewise distinguished by their actions. So the, the the meaning here that I get out of this is that it's not because you're Buddhist or because you're a meditator. You know, if you just say I'm Buddhist and I agree with everything the Buddha said and my teacher is the Buddha and so on. It's not because you come here and you're a meditator and you know, this would be a big thing for monks. When you become a monk, it, it can be quite a prestigious thing. Like, hey, look at me, I'm doing this great thing, living off in the forest, or just even just wearing robes. Maybe you, some of you put on white clothes. and That can be a great encouragement because then you have a uniform, but it can also be for some people who wear white clothes for years, and it can be an attachment. We're not wise just because we call ourselves Buddhist or monks or meditators. Not even because we meditate. Well, that's not true. Not, not just because we sit and close our eyes, but because we meditate. Because of our actions. Not just because we meditate, because of all the many things as Buddhists that we do, right? Mainly primarily practicing mindfulness but in total based on our our actions a person is not a good person because of their name or their background or their wealth or their fame they're a good person because of their actions because of their the mental action really the mental quality of their the quality of their mind the things that they do the inclinations of the mind so that's number two number three the cow herd has to know how to take care of their cow's health and that includes being aware or being on guard against flies. Yeah, the last thing you want on your cows is 
for the flies to lay eggs. Apparently it's, it can be a very nasty thing if you're, suppose your cow has a, some kind of a wound and the flies lay eggs in the wound. It can actually make the cow very sick and perhaps even die. So a cow herd has to be vigilant and take care of their cows. I mean, nowadays I suppose they have all sorts of medicines and things that I don't know how they do it nowadays, but in ancient India, in India, the flies were, well, you have to watch out for them flies' eggs. That's a good, uh, good analogy here, you know, it's quite vivid. The meditators, you know, this, uh, there's this song, There Ain't No Flies On Us. It's a chant that you do when you're competing with other people. When we were kids, we used to chant, there ain't no flies on us. This is a kind of a festering, right? You don't want to let things fester. And as meditators, it's a very important aspect of our practice that we are vigilant, right? It's not just about closing your eyes, or it's not even just about trying to watch your stomach or go through an exercise. If you do that, but you're not meticulous about all the little aspects of your mental activity, it's very easy for something to fester. And so the Buddha says when desire arises, one is not mindful of it. Suppose you're mindful of other things, but the desire, you let it go. You follow it, you cultivate it. Wanting this, wanting that. Maybe it's just about food. Maybe you have some special food that you like to eat and you really sit and enjoy it. So it's your break from the practice and then you have the food and it's just so enjoyable. You let it fester, let the eggs grow. Or maybe it's dislike, something you don't like and rather than being mindful of it, you let it grow. This is a common thing in the beginning. As a meditation teacher, I'm responsible for your flies as well. and Sometimes I have to catch a meditator when they let to be very um, very caring for the meditators meditators have to care for their own minds and the teacher has to be very careful and cautious in supporting the meditators not to let something fester some dislike could be something at the center maybe they don't like the food and they let it get to them or Maybe it's too cold, too hot. Here it's not too cold, even though it's very cold in Canada. We're, we're, we have quite the luxury of the heat here. In Thailand, wow, you sometimes it's a much hotter climate, but you know there's no heat. So in the winter, it could get very cold at night. anything you have to you have to be very careful not to let it fester and the third one some kind of delusion they they say cruelty and i'm always had trouble with this third one but i like to think of it more as a arrogance it's not really actually what it means i don't know i'm going to i'm going to sort of fudge that one because we have ill will and cruelty, and I don't really see the difference there. Anyway, I think I've looked at, into that, but let's just skip over it. Because in general, the point is, when evil and wholesome states have arisen, mm, some, some cowards just tolerate them. Don't abandon them, don't remove them, don't do away with them. So any unwholesome states. And again, by unwholesome, we're not... It's not something we feel guilty about. We shouldn't feel guilty about it. We should just understand that these things are are for our own detriment. They're going to ruin us. If you let the cow eggs fester, nobody else is going to suffer but you. This doesn't make you a bad person, but you have to feel ashamed. It makes you a bad person because you have to suffer. The difference between a bad person and a good person is only that they suffer more. The bad person suffers more than the good person. That's all it means. 
And that's an important part of the practice too, is that don't be, don't be discouraged that you have flies' eggs. Just learn how to deal with them. And until you do, you're going to suffer terribly. And this, the next one, I don't know how many numbers, which one we're, number we're at. Uh, a, a cow herd has to be able to dress the wounds. So not just keep them from getting infected. Yeah, well, a big part of keeping them from getting infected is caring for them. When you're wounded. Now we're all wounded is again an apt analogy because our minds are wounded we're talking about the wounds of the mind this cow of our mind is has all sorts of scars not scars but open wounds that are just ripe to be to fester to get infected in fact i think the wounds here that he's talking about are just the senses The senses are our wounds. And we're talking in a very deep philosophical sense here. I mean, the, the, this is a this deep claim that's very difficult to stomach, let alone understand. Is that sensual experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and feeling and thinking? It's like, um, well, let's not be too negative and say they're like wounds. But the point is. They have the potential for for causing us suffering. But this is where the this is where the defilements arise, is at the senses. And so a meditator tending to their senses is like a a cowherd tending to the wounds of the cow. Keeping them clean, keeping them clean basically, keeping them covered. Two things you have to do, keep them clean and keep them covered. So how does a meditator keep their wounds clean and covered? First of all, they clean them using mindfulness. Right? So we clean our, we keep our senses clean. When we see something with the eye, uh, but the Buddha uses a very useful phrase that helps us understand what meditation is meant to be like. He says, nimitta gahi nanubhyanjana gahi. So sometimes meditators complain that when we meditate, uh, when we use the mantra, it doesn't allow us to have a deep understanding of the details and the, the characteristics of the experience. But that's actually the point. The Buddha says, Nani mita gahi, the, the details. One doesn't grasp or, or pay attention really, well, grasp at the details. Nanubhyanjana gahi. Nanimita gahi, the, the characteristics and nanubhyanjana gahi, the details, the specifics, the particulars. One doesn't grasp them. Nagahi. Because if one grasps at the particulars, when that which you see, if you're focused on like seeing flowers in the carpet, for example, the flowers are what uh, would give rise to potential uh, pre, uh, desire or attachment like this story of there was a monk who was walking for alms and this beautiful woman came out she was running away from her husband and she saw him and she laughed and he looked up and he was so focused on um his practice that all he saw were 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 her teeth uh, and it made him think not of something beautiful but of a skeleton and so when when she ran by and the husband came and said have you seen this woman he said i only saw some bones that was the sign that he saw the particular that he saw i think he was very much practicing this type of meditation where you you're aware of the parts of the body it's a good it's not insight meditation but it's a good way of 
helping to overcome desire for the body because you see that the body is really just made up of mucky stuff there's nothing beautiful about it but when we're mindful we, we, we keep this sort of purity and you see it's just seeing you say to yourself seeing seeing and that's the end of the story there's no doesn't go any further and there's no room for and there's nothing desirable about seeing it's only the particulars the concepts and then the the, the recognition sanya which allows us reminds us hey that's like that thing that made me happy before maybe i should chase after that not maybe but then right away there's the desire for it How you keep them covered, how you keep your wounds covered is, is by caring for the senses in terms of not running around, chasing after experiences that are going to give rise to desire and aversion, mainly coming, coming to a meditation center. I mean, the Buddha talked a lot about seclusion, finding a secluded place. You know, coming to a meditation center is a great way to do that. Even just closing your, your bedroom door, finding a quiet spot, going off into the park or into the forest for the day, spending some time alone. It's a great way to keep your wounds covered. It's not going to keep them clean, but it helps. You know, it helps keep them clean, helps keeping them from getting infected again. So if you do these two things, basically live a simple life or live a secluded life simple life is maybe the best way to explain it and then in that simple life you undertake a sort of a diligent practice of of objectivity really um, this mindful state where you're aware of things as they are not being deluded and confused and prejudiced and so on that's how one dresses one's wounds. Uh, and then uh, I guess this is something that cowherds have to do. They have to smoke out the sheds. I don't know what that refers to. But uh, I guess keeping the flies out of the barn, keeping the bugs out of the barn or something, you use smoke. Smoke is a good way to keep bugs away. That's the only thing I can think of here. Maybe smoke out means to get rid of the, 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 the critters that are in them. You don't want critters in the barn or so on. So you, maybe mice or something. So if you smoke them out, they all go away. And this is, I think, the equivalent of the English phrase of uh, getting the cobwebs, sweeping away the cobwebs. We say that about the mind, right? Cobwebs in your mind are, are laziness, are are the right keeping house keeping house this this actually refers to teaching the dhamma so a meditator doesn't teach other people the dhamma doesn't surround themselves with other people who are also practicing I mean the Buddha did encourage spreading the Dhamma, sharing it with others. And uh, the, the idea here is that it, it uh, cleans out the barn. So sorry, it's not the cobwebs of the mind, but it's your, your environment. The most important thing about your environment is that you're surrounded by other people who are meditating. And so a big part of that, the Buddha he specifically says here, the way to do that is to share the Dhamma with each other, to teach each other. New people who come, teach them how to meditate. And we should have the old meditators teach the new meditators. At least show them how to do walking meditation, sitting meditation, mindful prostration. When I was, uh, when I first went to Thailand, 
was one of my duties for a long time was to show people how to do the mindful prostration, the walking, sitting. Even just that much, you've done a great service to people. Just giving them the technique. Anyway, that's sometimes useful. Uh, the next one is a cowherd has to know the ford, the crossing. Where to cross the river. If you've got cows, you can't just say, get on across that river and have them all drown. You have to know where to cross. How do you find out where to cross? Well, you ask people. And so he says, there are some meditators who never go and ask about the teaching, never go and find a teacher, never go and ask questions, never go and study, never go and try to find wisdom, knowledge, to find the way across the river. And so this is important. It's important to ask questions. It's important to have it, to find a teacher, seek them out and ask them your questions and ask for, for, for help with your practice. If you don't go to them, they can't teach you. The next one is someone who doesn't understand something about um, which cows have drunk have 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 drank water. So they've gone down to the river. How do you know which ones have drank their fill? Some monks, some uh, some meditators, some practitioners don't know what it means to have drunk your fill, to have already drank the water. So some people don't don't aren't inspired by the teachings. For some people, it's quite uninspiring to think about being objective and to have a pure mind, to have a clarity of mind, to be present. To be present here and now for some people is not inspiring, which is really a shame, of course, because it should be inspiring. You should be inspired to be pure and to be cleansing and constantly bettering yourself, making your mind better greatest thing we can do for ourselves is being present and cultivating all of the clarity of mind and the wisdom that comes from just being here, just being. That's really the most amazing thing about mindfulness is how much the depth of wisdom and the challenge to the very core of our being that comes from just being present. You think, well, there are other things that are more more challenging than that, or, or maybe it's challenging, but it's not the ultimate challenge. It in fact turns out that, yes, it is the ultimate challenge to just be here now without judging, without reacting, without... without getting lost in the past and the future and desires and imaginations and so on. Turns out to be the most difficult thing, most challenging and the most rewarding. So some people are inspired by this. When they hear the Dhamma, when they think about practicing the Dhamma, it's inspiring for them. For others, they're not inspired. And I don't make a very good cowherd. As they don't know what it means to be full of the Dhamma, to be inspired by the Dhamma. And then some cowherds don't know the path, don't know the road. I had a funny experience with this. I can attest, if you don't know the road, it's quite... In Thailand, they, they send the cows up into the, the hills. People live in the hills of Thailand, it's, and it's really hills, rolling hills almost mountains, but just hills as far as the eye can see. 
and uh, and paths everywhere. So I was following a cow path off into the wilderness, and then I wanted to go back, and suddenly it turned around and realized suddenly there were more than one path. In fact, there were paths up and down every hill. I got lost. So that's my big story of how I got lost in the forest. For hours and hours I was lost. Uh, tell that story a lot for various reasons. But here, the path that the if you, we the path that we need to know is the eightfold noble path. Ordinary paths. That's not so important. What's important is to know the eightfold noble path. You know, right view, right inclination, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Basically, morality, concentration, and wisdom. You know, are you ethical? Do you know what it means to be ethical? Are you focused? Do you know what it means to be focused? Are you wise? Do you know what it means to be wise? That's knowing the path. Next one is being skilled in pastures. One has to know how far does the pasture go? When, when do, how do I know when the cows are out of the pasture? How do I know they've gone outside of the pasture? Uh, you have to know how far your pasture goes. If they stray from that, there's all sorts of problems. Maybe there are holes in the field or maybe there are wild animals. Maybe someone will steal the cows if they go outside the pasture. There's lots of dangers. A meditator has their pasture. The Buddha talked often about this, the pasture. He said, our pasture is, is what? Our pasture is the four foundations of mindfulness. A meditator should always, always, always be within the boundaries of the four foundations of mindfulness. And if you read the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, it's a bit uh, complicated, overcomplicated perhaps, but that's because it's it's a practical teaching. But the, the pastures are just reality, right? But the problem is that reality is a heavily laden term that means so many different things to different people, depending how you look at it. Experiential reality, experience. Our boundaries are the boundaries of experience. When you see something, your boundary is the seeing. So mindfulness is the practice of, is, is how you behave. Your boundary should be mindfulness. You don't go any further than seeing is seeing. Hearing is hearing. Seeing comes up, what is that? That's hearing, and that's all. That's your boundary. That's your pasture. As soon as you get beyond that, now the danger. That's where the danger comes. So knowing the f using the four foundations of mindfulness, this is how we keep our minds within the confines of reality. Seeing is seeing, hearing is hearing. The body is the body, right? Uh, fe feeling hard, soft, moving the body. Move the body knowing that it's moving. When you sit, knowing that you're sitting. When you stand, know that you're standing. Feelings, when you have a ha pleasant feeling, knowing that it's a pleasant feeling. When you feel painful feeling, knowing that it's a painful feeling. Not letting your mind go beyond that. When you have thoughts about the past or the future, knowing that they're just thoughts. Thoughts are thoughts doesn't matter past thoughts, future thoughts, good thoughts, bad thoughts. Sometimes thoughts can make us very, uh, very, very upset, overwhelmed. If they're very bad thoughts, right? Something bad happened to us in the past, something very bad. That thought can consume us for years, for throughout our lives. Which when you think about it is, I mean, it's understandable, but it's kind of silly because it's just a thought. 
It's one of the big things you learn as a meditator. A lot of our problems are pretty silly. And if only we had known these simple, if only we had really had some guidance to say, look, it really is just a thought. It really is just a feeling. It really is just the body. And emotions, even emotions. When you're angry, what am I going to do about this? And, and everyone will have a different opinion and advice about what you should do when you're angry. Or when you want something. Well, go get it. You want it, go get it. Follow your heart. Lots of different advice for when we want or when we like or dislike things. How to how to behave when when we're angry, when we're sad, when we're afraid, all sorts of ways of dealing with it that are outside of the realm of mindfulness. And so even our emotions, even them, you know, these things that really can cause such stress and suffering. Well, they can't if we see them as they are. If you see fear as fear, there's nothing to fear. If you worry, if you see worry as worry. And that's all it is. People kill themselves over depression, and yet it's just depression. If they could only learn to see it just as being depressed. That's why we use mindfulness. That's our pasture. Another one is some cowherds try to milk the cows when they're dry. Oh no, they try to milk the cows all the way until they're dry. Milk them for all they're worth, which... I don't know whether that's a bad thing for cowherds to do. I don't know whether it actually is harmful to the cow, but there's something that's harmful for monks. This is um, particularly for monks, so it doesn't really apply to all Buddhists, but you could generalize. Because some monks are greedy, and so they milk their followers for all they're worth. When they go in for alms and they're offered food, they so you take what you want while well, they take it all. Um, it's sort of it's sort of a very specific thing, but I think it should be generalized. I think the Buddha would want it generalized, generalized to being greedy. You know, maybe uh, being being manipulative. Let's say, being. Uh, not knowing, not knowing your own, not knowing what's nest, the difference between what you want and what you need. Let's put it that way. Monks need food to live, just like everybody else. Um, but there's a difference between what you, what you need and what you want. And so, applying it to meditators, you know what you need. That's quite different from what you want. Sometimes you want good food or or, or delicious food. Sometimes you want very comfortable beds. You want to go home and sleep on your nice bed. We want the, the things we want in terms of living our life, the comforts and enjoyments. This is the things that we need. That's not really, I think, what's, what he's getting at here. Milking dry. Milking dry refers to Specifically, in, it refers to taking advantage of, of, of people who support you. Because it's a problem for, I mean, it's a problem for religion, right? If, the, if, if a monk becomes um, unsustainable. I mean, the thing about a, a monk's life, a monk is someone who is... Who is um, cared for by a community you know the, the only way a monk can survive is because they're surrounded by people who want them to do this you know who think yes this is a good thing when in fact you think well why in the world would other people want to let this person you know get away with not having to work for their food not having to not having to take care of themselves in, in so many ways it's a good question because the only way it could happen is if that person was somehow, um, let's say, useful. And you could say you could argue that some monks are just useful to themselves, which I think is fair. I'm willing. I'm happy to support a monk who's truly useful to themselves. I'm happy to support all of you, and you're not helping me in any way. 
right? We are supporting all of you, and, and the monks are like that. You support the monks. I would support anyone to become a monk, provided... Provided they were doing good for themselves. So it means all of you coming to meditate. You're doing good for yourself. You're not doing good for me. Good for you, and we support that. But of course, over the long term, monks are far more useful in other ways because they teach. They help other people to practice meditation. They, Even if they just memorize the, the Buddha's teaching, then they're, they're a great resource that they're able to teach others. And uh, and so it's a it's an important relationship, and to take advantage of that, to let it become an obsession where you're always taking and taking. It's not something you meditators have to worry about. But there was a time where we were trying to fulfill all the meditators' desires. We had, uh, if you need anything, write down here what you need. And oh boy, the list started getting longer and longer and longer. I think that's a good example. It's problematic because it it, um, it makes the system break down. And it got hard for us then the, the, the food bills were, were very high and so on. That's an example of extending this. But it's not such a it's not exact it's not that problematic. What's really problematic is when a monk does this sort of thing because people respect them and, and the religious leaders, you know, you want to support them but but wow, if they need all these things. I'm very well taken care of. Everyone gets me whatever I want, so I have to be quite careful to remind myself, oh, wants and needs, do I need that or do I just want it? That's, I guess, number 10, because now we're at the last one. The last one is um, some cowherds don't respect the the old cows, the bulls, the ones who are the head of the herd. I think that's important probably because they could gore you, and if you don't know which one's the head bull, you better watch out because they might kill you. That's the one that you got to watch out for. And in the same way practitioners, particularly monks, are not respectful for, to their elders. There's a big thing in Buddhism. It's not this isn't this isn't a very deep teaching, but it's a, it's a, it's an important teaching for practical purposes. Because it's too easy to get caught up in your own idea of of worth. This person is is a good person, this person is not a good person, and become very critical. Um, you know, this is how the newcomers, newcomers to Buddhism, as monks, it's a big deal. Where a new monk will almost always think they're better than the old monks. So one thing I noticed in Thailand as you watch these monks come through and most of them don't make it past a few months. Most of them never intended to make it past a few months, but some of them do and you notice that the new monks uh, the new monks are just trying to figure out how to be a monk, but after about a year after about a year you notice that uh, there's a sense that, wow, I wasn't I wasn't a very good monk, but before, but I, now after a year, I'm a really good monk. You know, I really got this down, and I'm really good at it. And then as time goes by, maybe after two years or so, they they start to realize, boy, I wasn't a very good monk before, but but now I'm a pretty good monk after a couple years, a few years. And then as time goes on. They start to realize, boy, I wasn't a very good monk back then, but but now I'm an okay monk. And as time goes on, your esteem of yourself, you start, you realize again and again, 
that you're better than you were before, except that state of better is less good than it was. It means you have less of a high, high um, opinion of yourself. And a parallel with meditators is after a meditation course, sometimes you have, you're in such a high that you feel, boy, I'm in, now I'm enlightened. That was it. Well, I'm, I'm just, I did it. And then you go home and you try to teach everybody else and then you realize that you're really not all you thought you were. The benefits you got were not nearly as profound or, or you know, were, were significant, but they didn't mean that you have no more defilements left. And oh, so, okay, so how that relates to this is... Um, we have this social order of, of paying respect to our elders. It's a monastic thing, really. Because we don't want... And, we, and it's important. We shouldn't just take this as paying lip something we should pay lip service to. We respect people who have been there a long time because of their knowledge, because of their experience. And because I might be wrong when I think this person is good, that person is good. If we just esteem people based on our own understanding of who is who is uh, a good meditator, a good Buddhist, a good monk, you know, then everyone does that, and then it's chaos, right? The only way you can have order and really a potential for harmony is, is to everybody pay respect in the same order. And we have a sense of trying to promote people who have been there a longer period of time, also to prop them up and to be clear that, hey, you've been here for a long time, <laughs> you better shape up, you better keep keep up with the new people. Anyway, that's just probably more of a monastic thing. But there you go, that's this sutta. I think there's a lot of useful stuff in there. It's a, another good way of describing the monastic life in particular, but in general, the meditative life. So I hope that was helpful. That's the Dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in.